Hi, welcome to Leadership with Randy. I'm Randy Powell. Today you're listening to Lessons on Leadership, our weekly conversation with inspiring people sharing some of the stories and lessons from their journey. But combat is men are kids. We were just kids killing each other, hunting each other down and killing each other. It's a singular activity that hasn't changed since we were beating each other's brains out with rocks. And I wanted the American people to know that. So I was writing poems about what combat was like. Our guest today is John Musgrave, a Vietnam veteran who returned home from the war wounded after having been shot in battle, but who soon learned that some of the most difficult wounds to heal are those psychological burdens we carry after having suffered trauma. He became a passionate early advocate for other veterans and the fight to inform the public about post-traumatic stress, something that wasn't talked about much in those days. Mr. Musgraves, the author of Notes to the Man Who Shot Me, a book of Vietnam War poetry, and The Education of Corporal John Musgrave. You can learn more about his lifelong work to help other veterans at johnmusgraveveteran.com. Now let's go hear from Mr. Musgrave. Well, uh, welcome, Mr. Musgrave. Uh, we've talked a bit about you uh, while we were waiting to get connected. Uh, Mr. Musgrave is author of a couple of books, Notes to the Man Who Shot Me. This is a book of poems, which are really powerful. And then the, uh, the Education of Corporal John Musgrave. So a couple of really great books um, that share some of the insights about your story. But I know everybody here is eager to hear from you today, sir. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your beginning and your journey to the Marines and, and Vietnam and then some of the things you learned along the way. All right. Well, I was a baby boomer. So my, I was the son of a teenage bomber pilot in World War II, and he met my mother in an aviation construction uh, company where they were building B-25s. And so both my parents served in their own way and I grew up with a sense of service. And I grew up with a hatred and fear of communists. They were the, the boogeyman for our generation. And throughout my School years, I remember that we had fire drills, tornado drills, and nuclear attack drills. And uh, they consisted of hiding under our desk or pulling our coat over our head out on the playground to protect us from an atomic bomb delivered by the Russians. It didn't, uh, didn't generate a lot of confidence. But everything bad that happened, the Hungarian Revolution, um, the, the rising in 48 in uh, East Germany, everything that happened bad in the world was happening because of the Russians and the, the communists. So when I'm in high school, it's suddenly the communists are fighting in Asia, and uh, we've got to go fight them. And I wasn't. I also have to realize that our generation grew up with the draft. From the moment we were born, we owed our country two years in military service if we were male. So we had to think about the military, whether it was war or peace. And the only real choice you had was uh, either letting yourself be drafted into the army or choosing a different branch. So at the age of 17, I chose the Marine Corps. I always joked that I was dodging the draft by enlisting before I was old enough to register. Volunteered for the infantry, volunteered for Vietnam, arrived in Vietnam in uh, early 1967. And uh, the party started there. And in your um, 
brief time there, you were uh, seriously injured. Yes, I lasted 11 months and 17 days. And the last time I was wounded, I was permanently disabled. And the story you shared at the gala was about how much the country changed just in that 11 months that you were gone. You returned to really a, a different United States than what it seemed like you left. You got that right. Yeah, after 11 and a half months of humping the boonies, and I was in 1st Battalion, 9th Marines, Delta Company, 3rd Platoon. Uh, we suffered the highest casualties of any Marine infantry battalion in the history of the Marine Corps while we were in Vietnam. So we, we saw some hard, some hard business and uh, I came home not only disabled, but I, by wounds, I came home disabled by a wound I didn't even understand. And that was post-traumatic stress. But uh, coming home to a country that I didn't recognize, that was just like ripping the wounds wide open and pouring salt in them. Uh, music had changed. Uh, when, when I left, the Beach Boys had the number one hit, and, uh, good vibrations. When I came home, it was... Uh, and I got a DeVita and, and uh, anti-war songs. And the attitude of the people had changed drastically. The peace movement had grown a great deal in 1967. And when they flew me to the hospital, the first place they landed us in the United States was Scott Air Force Base in East St. Louis. And the next day they were going to fly us to Great Lakes Naval Hospital. The, uh, that's only about 30 minutes by jet from St. Louis to Chicago. But they brought us in about 1030 at night. And I remember thinking as they done two things, as they loaded me off the aircraft, carried me down on my stretcher and snow landed on me. And I started to cry. And I thought, I'm home. Didn't snow in Vietnam. I really made it. And then the next thing that hit me was, God damn, it's awful dark. Are they ashamed of us? And he said, well, we did it for your protection. And I said, what the hell are you talking about? My protection, I'm home. I don't need protecting anymore. I made it. And he said, no, you don't understand. There's We've had people lining up along the fence up the roadway. And when we've unloaded the wounded and throwing things, they can't reach you, but they throw things and yelling obscenities at you guys. And I said, well, what the hell for? We didn't do anything. And he says, well, that's not the way they see it. And I had no idea just how wrong it was and how much it was going to hurt us. So what was that like to come back to an environment that you had been fighting for a country and you came back and felt like the country didn't appreciate what you were doing? It broke my heart. That's the only way I can explain it. it. It just felt like such a betrayal. Uh, after seeing the casualties that I'd seen in my unit and thinking that it, could it all have been for nothing. And I knew that my buddies were suffering in case on 
while I was lying in that hospital ward. And it just made me sick. And it didn't stop while I was in the hospital. I mean, I once I became ambulatory and was able to leave the hospital, it got worse because people confronted me on the street. It was pretty easy to tell even when I wasn't in uniform that I was a Marine because I had a high and tight and I'm hobbling all around. And as I was a wounded veteran and I didn't hide it. I was an in-your-face veteran, you know. Uh, I wasn't going to let anybody make me feel like I had to be ashamed about anything because we fought the North Vietnamese Army and we fought them to a standstill and I there was nothing to be ashamed of there. He called me a baby killer, but I never killed any babies. He called me a war criminal and, well, that was a pretty broad interpretation of war criminal, if I was. But they'd never been under fire. They'd never found their buddies mutilated and tortured after they'd been captured. And they never tried to fight them. Fight one of the best light infantry units in the world, the 324B Division better armed than we were because our rifles didn't work. We said we represented the richest nation in the world and we couldn't depend on the tools they gave us to do the job that they wanted us to do for them. So I was already pissed off about that. But to come home and have people accuse me of, of doing horrible crimes that none of us ever would have considered doing. That was just too much. You know, those were uh, horrible times in our country. You know, when I just look back at, at videos of what life was like, uh, and, you know, probably most folks on this call don't remember it, but you experienced it. Yes, sir between the anti-veteran uh, anti sentiment, the civil rights movement, there was just a lot of anger and violence that yep. was taking place. What, when did you experience things start to get better? Because I think today we all have a great appreciation for you and our Vietnam veterans and the sacrifices you guys made. When, how long did it take for you to feel the country sentiment change on that? Well, it was a long process and uh, didn't help when they retired me from the Marine Corps for disability because I was safe in the Marine Corps. I had my buddies with me. I was the job I'd done. Uh, and when they retired me from the Marine Corps, they just threw me out there into that society that was chomping us up. And it was it was a very difficult transition for me. And I, I uh, started drinking heavily and dating my 45, which meant every night after I'd come home from drinking, I'd get my pistol out of the drawer and chamber around and put it under my chin or against my temple and dare myself to finish the job instead of looking at my my rescue under fire as a gift that my brothers had given me and, and a couple of them had been killed in the process because Marines never leave their wounded. I looked at it as a burden and survivor's guilt's what they called it later. I didn't know that at the time. And I felt like I had killed those men myself. So I felt like I didn't have the right to live. And every night that I didn't blow my brains out, I thought I was a coward. And uh, 
it was a pretty close run thing for a couple of years. And then I found out I had to change my attitude about the war. You know, I can't trust the people on the right. I can't trust the people on the left. So uh, there was uh, an organization made up of Vietnam veterans. And I said, if they're Vietnam veterans, I'm with them. And it was Vietnam veterans against the war. So I joined them and I fought to end the war that I'd fought in because I knew by 1971 that we were losing the war. I actually knew we were losing the war when I got there and I found out we weren't fighting for property. We were just fighting to kill people. War is a real estate business. You take real estate away from the enemy, you deny them access to whatever tactical and strategical advantages that terrain gives them. You deny them access to the natural resources of that terrain. But all we were doing was killing guys and then lying about how many we were killing and then leaving and the enemy would come back, take the ground again, and we'd turn right back around and have to come back and fight the same freaking place. And sometimes the same guys and die or be wounded doing the same thing we'd done a week before. And it was madness. It was absolute madness. And we, the, the ink wasn't even dry on my high school diploma. And I knew that we were losing that war. And it frustrated the hell out of me while I was there. And then when I come home and I heard all the political horse shit, and I heard all the peace movement horse shit, then I heard a bunch of Vietnam veterans telling the truth. I joined them. And it was the hardest decision I ever made in my life. And it tore me in half emotionally. Because some of the things that VVAW did, I didn't like. But the majority of things they did, I felt had to be done in order to get the American people to, to listen to us. For God's sakes, we were the sons of the World War II veterans. We were their children. We went into the military because we wanted to be like them. So that's why we threw our medals away because we thought that'd get their attention. We didn't want to throw them away. God, I'd bled like a pig for those things. I'd kill people for those things. But when they said, we think this is the only thing that'll get their attention, it made sense to me. So I said, okay, if, the, if my country needs this sacrifice too, to, in order to stop that war, then I'll sacrifice that as well. But while I was with VVAW, we were only the, we were the first veterans organization in the country, not VFW, not American Legion, not the DAV, not AMVETS, VVAW in 1972 declared post-traumatic stress and Agent Orange exposure as disabilities, service-connected disabilities and national priorities in 1972. We broke ground for the other veterans organizations who laughed at us, who insulted us and called us crybaby vets and accused us, accused us of going out for a, a quick buck for the VA who didn't give a quick buck to anybody. And we started the fight for what was then called PVS, post-Vietnam syndrome, because we were the only guys that had the guts to talk about it. So I could be proud of what we were doing in those fields. 
And I was going around, pardon me. I was going around doing veterans education classes for my fellow Vietnam vets on post-traumatic stress and Agent Orange exposure, what it meant to us. And I was doing public education events in 1972 on up until finally the DAV stepped in. And the DAV took the took on the the majority of the fight because they were a bigger, much bigger organization. But Vietnam Veterans Against the War doesn't get any credit for that. And I think that's a crime because we were the first ones and we were the only ones for years that had the guts to fight that fight. And in uh, fighting that fight, it, that helped keep me alive because I had a new mission. And my mission was to keep my brothers from killing themselves and to keep myself from killing myself. So they were very difficult times, but the mission was the same as it was in Vietnam. Keep, keep our brothers alive. And it was simple, it was to the point, it made sense, and I have never been ashamed of having served in that organization, knowing the things that we did that nobody else would do. So whenever any fellow Vietnam veteran comes up and wants to give me any shit about being in BBAW, I won't have it. I want to know what he was doing in 1972, what he was doing to help Vietnam veterans. And if he wasn't doing something, he's got no right to criticize me or my buddies for doing things, for doing things that help. So if it sounds like I've got an attitude, it's because I do. <laughs> what were some of the things you guys did to educate the public on, you know, there was a lot of confusing information. When I go back and read of that time, you know, people were Absolutely. misstating information and results on the ground and you had a lot of politics involved in in the military leadership it sounds like and so what were you guys doing to really tell people what the truth was we would talk to anybody that would listen we would tell them about the about the difference between a real estate business and counting meat because you know the body count that we call that counting meat and if we called in seven or 20 KIA, by the time it got to our battalion, it was 25. By the time it got to third MAF in Da Nang, it was 35. And by the time it got to MACV in Saigon, we killed 55. Then by the time MACV told the Defense Department, maybe we killed 105. It was just, it was bullshit. And there was, we were telling them, you can't believe what you're being told about this war. They're, they're lying to you about, they were using a yardstick, yardstick for victory that encourages us to kill and not capture. And that yardstick isn't even true. And we, told them about strategies and tactics that we were using that made us more enemies than comrades and the Vietnamese people. We told them how we thought we could, what we thought we needed to change in order to win the war. But we also felt that at this late date, the best thing we could do was get the fuck out. Pardon my French, but there wasn't any wasn't any point in cleaning up our language for this because it was a clusterfuck. And the only way I knew to save Americans, and at that time, that's all I cared about was saving Americans, was to get them home. And if I had to be called a traitor and be called a communist 
after I fought those bastards. And I would do it. And I did it. It was the toughest job I ever did, and the hardest decision I ever made, and some of the most honorable service I ever provided for my country because I didn't provide it with anybody backing me up. It was me and just those brave guys that I was standing beside. And they were brave men. You know, I've talked to a lot of World War II vets and the, the whole notion of post-traumatic stress wasn't even known then. Yeah, most of say they would just come home and drink till they got tired of drinking. It, yeah, it sounds that like sounds you, like a symptom, doesn't it? Yeah, you were starting to get an awareness of post-traumatic stress. It's still hard to believe that that was controversial at that time. Yes, yes, it is. It was disgraceful because it was so obvious. I mean, we were their sons. We knew, don't wake up daddy, don't touch daddy to wake him up when we were growing up because daddy's going to wake up swinging. We knew daddy drinks too much. We knew daddy screams in the night. That's all post-traumatic stress. And, and then they would turn around and, and ridicule us. Later, I was a, a disabled veterans outreach program counselor. And it was right about the time that the World War II veterans started to uh, retire from the jobs that had kept them occupied all those years since the war, where they had been working their ass off to provide for us to have so the less baby boomer kids could have the best childhood of any kids in American history. And they would have to come in and register with my office because my office was in the uh, employment office. And one of my jobs was to help disabled veterans find work. And they would come in and start saying, now I'm not one of those crybaby vets. And I'd say, oh, you mean like me? And they'd say, no, nah, we didn't do that. He said, we won our war. You guys lost yours. You know, I mean, that's just insulting. Within, I could almost set my calendar or my watch to six months and they would be back in my office saying, I was wrong, I'm sorry, I need help. Because after they had, didn't have that job to give them their identity, within six months, their world started caving in on them. And they started realizing that all those things that they'd been doing to cope with their combat experience from World War II had actually been fighting post-traumatic stress for all those years. And they became some of our strongest advocates after that. And we were glad, glad to have them. We didn't give them any shit about having been late to the party. We told them how proud we were to serve with them. And we needed them, we, we really needed them. I want to read a little bit from the book and then and then ask you about it. Um, okay. This is um, this is from the letter to the the man who shot you. You are a good soldier. I've come to realize that you and I had more in common than we did with the man who sent us to kill each other. If I could, I'd give you the gift I've longed for all these years: the gift of peace. How much? I mean, there's some powerful thoughts that you have throughout this book, how much was writing part of your own healing and your own coming to grips with the things you had seen and endured? It was, uh, uh, that book of poetry stemmed from 1969 when I got out of the hospital, clear up to the day that book was published. The last poem that I wrote before the book was published was Notes to the Man Who Shot Me because I had made a change Oh. a very difficult change in my thinking about the war. I had always hated the North Vietnamese army and I had confused my hatred of them with my loyalty to my dead friends. So 
I was talking to my wife one night and I just started, she said, what would you say to this guy, the guy that shot you, knowing that he shot some of your friends, what would you say to him if he was alive? Because I knew he had been killed. Uh, my buddies had killed him. It was the only way to get to me after the other two guys had been killed. And I just started talking and she was typing like crazy. I didn't realize she was taking it down word for word. And it turned into the poem, Notes the Man Who Shot Me. And it was me intellectually signing my own personal ceasefire with the war. I was saying to the man who had nearly ended my life, with a burst of machine gun fire to my chest that I didn't blame him and that I looked at him as a brother, a fellow combat veteran, and that I did realize that we had more in common than we did with the men who sent us. And that was a big gigantic step for me because I realized my buddies didn't want me to carry that hatred. That hatred was like a big, infection, pocket of infection in my guts that just kept me in the war and kept me, hatred keeps you negative. And you don't accomplish anything positive when all you're doing is thinking negative. And that began my healing, my real healing. And that was in uh, 2000 and something. I can't remember when the book came out. It was a year before that. All the other poems I'd been writing, I had been writing because I wanted people to understand what we were going through in the bush. I didn't call it war poetry, I call it combat poetry because that's, we were in combat, we weren't at war. War's lots of things. War's economic, war's political, war's, you can list a, a dozen things that are war, but combat, is men are kids, we were just kids, killing each other, hunting each other down and killing each other. It's a singular activity that hasn't changed since we were beating each other's brains out with rocks. And I wanted the American people to know that. So I was writing poems about what combat was like. And I decided that my poem on suicide and my poem on Notes to the Man were the two poems that had to close the book. Now, after I was in the Ken Burns documentary, I, for the first time, decided I wanted to go back to Vietnam. I had never had any desire to go back because every time I dreamed about Vietnam, and that was damn near every night, I dreamed about those 18 and 19 year old North Vietnamese soldiers who were blowing my guts out and killing my friends. And I thought, Jesus, you know, these guys are scaring the shit out of me. I hate their guts. I don't, I don't want to go back and see them. But during the filming of that documentary, Lynn Novick went to North Vietnam and found soldiers who had fought my unit in the bloodiest single day of the war and July 2nd, 1967, which was the beginning of a battle, uh, beginning of a battle called Operation Buffalo, where we suffered the highest casualties that the Marine Corps ever suffered in a single battle, in a single day. Uh, 1st Battalion, 9th Marines, was, we lost a whole company and the other three companies were tore up so bad you couldn't put us together to make a company. And we were withdrawn from the field. The only time a Marine Infantry Battalion was ever withdrawn from the field of battle because we couldn't, we didn't have enough guys to fight. Well, she found the guys that fought us, guys from the 324B Division. And, uh, 
I didn't know how I was going to feel about that seeing them. Because I thought I still in my gut and your gut always gets a vote. Never forget that. In my mind, I'd forgiven them, but my gut, I still hated their guts. And I saw these guys talking in the documentary and they were new. I knew they were men that maybe they were men that were shooting at me. Maybe they were men that wounded me, but they were just old men. They weren't those kids that came into my dreams at night and scared the shit out of me. They were just old men like me. And they were talking about their buddies like me. And they were talking about their battles and their terror like me. And that's when my gut finally voted for peace. And I, I suddenly, I wanted to go back to Vietnam. I knew my journey wasn't complete until I went back and saw the Vietnamese at peace and met those men. So it was arranged for me to go back to Vietnam and meet those men that were in the documentary that fought my unit. They desperately wanted to meet me and I desperately wanted to meet them. I thought I could really end my war, finally end my war, if I sat down with them as brothers and embraced them as survivors. Because that's all we are. We're all combat veterans of the same fight. We're all survivors of the same hell. So I get to Vietnam and the North Vietnamese are pissed off about the documentary. Now, Ken Burns was very even-handed in that documentary. So even-handed that a lot of Vietnam veterans got pissed off at him because he was, he, he told the North Vietnamese soldier side and that pissed a lot of guys off. Well, it pissed off the North Vietnamese because he told the South Vietnamese side. And they had been telling the Vietnamese people, 75% of their population had been born since the war ended. They had no memory of our war. So they had been telling 75% of their population, the communist government, that there had only been one war and it had been all Vietnamese against all Americans. So when I got there, they couldn't do anything to Ken or Lynn, but they knew who I was because I was in, I think, eight of the episodes. And so they, I thought they were going to stop me from entering the country. But instead, they let me come in. They, they allow Vietnam veterans from both sides to meet all the time. But when I got there, the North Vietnamese communist government ordered those particular veterans not to speak specifically to me. And it, it, nearly, it nearly ruined my, my experience of returning to Vietnam because I came back to talk to my brothers. I didn't come back to be pushed around by the communists. I still don't like communists. So that government, I had no affection for that government anyway. But I did meet a lot of Vietnamese and I did meet some North Vietnamese veterans. I met a lot of South Vietnamese vets too. And I saluted every one of them and told them I was sorry that we ran out on them because the way we left was disgraceful. Just like the way we left Afghanistan was disgraceful. Not the men and the women fighting on the ground. Everything they did was honorable. But the way our government chose to lead, chose to, chose to end our activities there, that was a disgrace to have us dying as we ran for the last helicopters. That's bullshit. 
But as you can tell, I'm an opinionated veteran. <laughs> if anybody and, has any questions, let us know. I know Drew's got a question. Let's go over to Drew. Oh, yeah, you bet. John, uh, what a powerful story. I, I absolutely, uh, your, your passion is very distinct. Uh, I think a lot of veterans sh share that passion uh, towards each Thank other. Um, and, and welcome home, brother. I think Thank you, you very much as well. Um, this is more tied to, you know, as a young kid before combat, learning right. about national diplomacy. Um, we are the far right corner of diplomacy when it comes to you know, bringing soldiers and, and our sons and daughters go to battle. Um, right. I'm curious as to how that realization that we are nothing more than a, dip a diplomatic pawn in our government really provided you a sense of realization and peace. Because I, I think sometimes we want to think we're the national decision makers. We're really Amen. Um, and so that's I'm what curious. I went over the feeling like I was doing. How much of that, how how much of that did you learn over a period of time? And could it have been prevented if our soldiers understand this diplomacy arm better uh, earlier on in their lives and then before they go to combat? I'm curious if that that education could have helped. That That's an outstanding question. And yes, it could. When we went to Vietnam, I went in the Marine Corps in 1966. So we had very few Vietnam veterans because we'd only been there for a year. And the Vietnam veterans that we were getting to train us were guys that had fought guerrillas. And they taught us to fight guerrillas. And uh, when we got there, we discovered we're fighting the North Vietnamese Army. And that's a whole different ballgame. But we also thought that we were going to go over and fight to win. President Johnson, who was our commander in chief at the time, said something very colloquial about we're not coming back till we nail the coonskin to the outhouse wall or something like that. The, the impression that we were given constantly in our training and by the statements of politicians who were pushing the war was that we were there to win a war. And it was just like World War II. And the Gulf of Tonkin had been just like Pearl Harbor. So when I landed on the ground, when I got off that troop ship and climbed into landing craft, just like the Marines went ashore on at Iwo Jima and Tarawa, when my ass hit the, the sands of Vietnam, my ass was on fire. I was ready. Uh, you know, let me get them. Just let me at them. I'm a hotshot infantry marine rifleman, you know. Now I'm going to kill communists and kill we, and we, there was actually a slogan, kill a commie for Christ. And I was a young Christian and an Eagle Scout. Had we have known that America never intended to win that war. And from the Pentagon Papers, we know they never did. If we had known that our government was not going to really back us in that war, wasn't even going to give us a rifle that we could count on, if we'd have known they were going to spray us with poison and tell us not to worry about it, it didn't really kill the plants, if we'd have known that Ho Chi Minh had been writing letters to Harry Truman, who was from Independence, Missouri, and I was from Independence, Missouri, I grew up going to the Truman Library and talking with Harry Truman as part of my high school classes. If we'd have known that they were trying to get the recognition of the United States in 1950 in their war against the French, that we could have been allies against the Chinese with these guys, it would have changed our attitudes. Instead, we went over there believing that every South Vietnamese was a Viet Cong or a Viet Cong supporter, which meant them eligible to be killed. 
they're either VC or VCS. And when you're fighting the NBA, there's no, there's no question. They're the enemy. You kill them. You kill them. We knew that that long road home, that long road that we all wanted to travel, we had to pave it with the bodies of our dead enemies or we were never gonna get home. And in the infantry, that's what we did. And I think if we would have known, had a better understanding of what the history of the war was, that our leadership would have been allowed to deploy us strategically uh, in a different way with different uh, goals that would have been more realistic for the reality of what was going on on the ground, that it would have made a big difference on how we fought the war and made a big difference on how the Vietnamese people felt about us. Believe me, when the Vietnamese people saw Marine riflemen, they were terrified. It's not the way that I unconsciously wanted them to feel, but it's, it's definitely the message that I, that I gave off like stink because I was ready to blow their brains out. If I thought they were helping the NBA, bada boom, bada bing, bada bang, you know, because they were the enemy. If I'd have known different things, we'd have fought a different war. We'd have fought the war that the Marine Corps was trying to fight down south, and that was the pacification war. Up north, it was kill or be killed. So I, your question is, is very important. And I hope there are a lot of people out there that, that have been asking themselves that very question. And if they haven't, if they've heard you today, I heard they're, I hope they're gonna start thinking about that now. Thank you, sir. No, I appreciate that. I, I think from uh, Vietnam or from the Vietnam brothers, uh, lessons learned there. I think a lot of us from Afghanistan and Iraq are, are 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 struggling through that whole piece as well. So, thank you for your answer. Thank you. Thank you for your service. You know, with your fifty years of experiences and the the vantage point you have of the those past fifty years of looking at this. What should we be doing to help our veterans today with, with post-traumatic stress? We should be listening without judging. We should be understanding that this is a wound that bleeds blood you will never see and leaves a scar you will never see. But it is deadly. It is a deadly wound. It is terminal. If we if we are suffering with post-traumatic stress and we don't get help, we know the end result is death. It's physical death from diseases that, that are brought on by our not taking care of ourselves. It's physical death from us blowing our brains out, driving our, driving our cars and our motorcycles into bridge abutments, getting into fights we know we're gonna lose punishing ourselves constantly for something that we don't need to punish ourselves for, that we should be proud of. The American people are responsible for that. When I got out of BVAW, I started working for all Vietnam veterans. And on every issue that came up, we would, the organizations that I would join, that I would, our help start would be just to fight those fights for Vietnam veterans. And the one that we were fighting the hardest was for post-traumatic stress because guys were killing themselves every day, every day. And the numbers were growing every day. 
And I think the numbers now are at least 22 veterans a day. And this is our kids now are killing themselves because this country is not stepping up to do its job. It's got to do more than just say, thanks for your service. And like, can I buy you dinner? It's got to open their hearts to these men and women. It's got to listen without judging them. Sometimes people think that they're not judging when they're listening, but when they're going, when they're listening to a veteran talk to them and then they're going, ooh, and making faces, that's a judgment call to a vet. That's, 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 that's a person saying, oh, you're making me sick. You did horrible things. And that maybe that's not what that person's trying to convey, but combat is an ugly, ugly business, a terrible business for kids to do. And when they hear us talking about it, sometimes they have a normal reaction. And what we're asking them to do is to, to sacrifice that reaction. We had to sacrifice a lot of reactions. So we need you to sacrifice this one. Don't judge us. You are not in the position emotionally or experientially to judge us. Just open your heart to our pain. Let us know that you believe in us. Let us know that you honor us. Let us know that you are as proud of us as you were our fathers. That's the job of the American people. We can't do it for them. We say welcome home to a Vietnam vet. We've been saying welcome home ever since I was in BVW because we were the only ones that were saying it. Vietnam vets were the only ones that would say welcome home to another Vietnam vet. I had Vietnam veterans break down and cry when I would meet them and say, welcome home, brother because it was the first time they heard it. And that was in the years after 2000, when we were building memorials. I was on the committee that built the first freestanding Vietnam Veterans Memorial on a college campus in the United States of America. And you should have seen the reaction of Vietnam veterans in our area when college students put their money and their effort into saying thank you. It was beautiful. And it healed a lot of wounds. And I think the most important step, first step for healing this horrible wound that was inflicted upon us by our service, by our honorable service, is for the American people to step up and take responsibility for the war and our service and welcome us home and do something about it. If they do that, we'll stop losing men in the numbers we're losing them now. We, we, I, I believe it to the depth of my soul that that will be the first stop to lowering those daily numbers of suicides in our generation and in our children's generation. And these young men and women that we sent to Iraq and Afghanistan, we had them fighting damn near the same way we were fighting in Vietnam. It's like we didn't learn a damn thing. And then we bring them home and we throw them parades left and right. Man, there, there's tons of parades, but it takes more than a parade. It takes personal contact. It takes personal investment in a veteran. But they throw parades and say, welcome home, and they think they've done their job. Well, they haven't. And if they would just listen to us and do their job, that one part, just that one part of the job, and the government would step up and make sure they kept the programs running like Warriors Ascent, that goes out and physically saves lives of veterans, just like the guys that ran out under machine gun fire to rescue me. 
They're running out to, re to get our wounded because we don't leave our wounded. We never would, we never will. Follow our example. I don't think we're asking for too much. All we're asking is for the American people to step up and serve their country like we served ours. And maybe some of the guys out there have a different idea about it. But I think that I think that's what we need. We need to do it hand in hand, arm in arm with our civilian fellow citizens or we'll never be successful. We'll be successful on an individual level with our veterans groups, but we won't be successful on a national level. And the national level is where we need to save the lives. That's what I'm thinking. It's amazing, you know, when you talked about the the welcome home. I visited a little restaurant in rural North Carolina once, and it was uh, opened by a Vietnam veteran, and it was the Welcome Home Veterans Cafe, and they'd come in there That's every week crazy. and eat for free. And I sat at these oh. tables and talked to these guys, and they said it's the first time they'd ever been welcomed home was when they came to the the little cafe. And it I wish like I could have gone there. Seems like such a simple thing that we take for granted, but to them it was huge. Amen, brother. God bless him. I I hope he's alive and listening. God bless him. He's actually not, but he set it up as a foundation and it continues on. And so there's volunteers that run this little cafe for him, even after he's gone. And it's it's awesome to go there. And it's just all these veterans coming every week and have breakfast together. Well, he not only served his country doing that while he was alive, but he created a legacy when he died. That's yeah. a hero in my book. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Amen. Thanks for telling me that. I needed to hear that. Well, thanks for the work you're doing to remind us of what all we should be doing. You know, it's uh, it's awesome to see you still out there sharing your message and continuing to educate people like you have for 50 years about what kind of nation we should be. Thank you. And I uh, appreciate you plugging the book. Yeah, it's an awesome book. People should grab that. It's uh, it's really heartfelt. I mean, just you, know, you get into things like even your relationship with your gun and things like that. that Amen. Are, Amen. It's very personal, the uh, the way you translate your experiences into into words. It, it really gets to you. Yeah, that rifle was our ticket home. So they became very personal to us. A lot of great well, comments. I don't know if you could see the comments on here, but um, you I know, know I was, uh, Andre, welcome home. Uh, uh, Drew, welcome home. Uh, Drew says being a change, change agent isn't easy, and your intestinal fortitude shows loud and clear through your passion. Uh, John commented that you need to write a book called War as a Real Estate Business. That, uh, that would be a uh, an awesome uh, way for you to continue to, your story. Uh, I'll Steve, continue my message with that, believe me. Yeah, Steve says, uh, thanks for your service, both during and after Vietnam. Mary liked your comment about hatred keeps you negative. That's a great reminder. Uh, Steve pointed out when you were talking about grudges that a grudge is like drinking poison and waiting for the other guy to die. Amen. That, that's a great line. I got to use that. Yeah. So a uh, lot of, lot of comments on here, thanking you and welcoming you home. It is awesome to spend time with you. Well, I'd like to close by saying that whenever anybody thanks me home, I still say with a very clear conscience, it was a privilege because serving my country was one of the greatest privileges of my life. And what we did, we did for our country. And the greatest honor of my life has been to earn the title Marine and the title of being a Vietnam veteran and counting myself among your number. So thank you very much. Well, you're continuing to serve your country and we're glad you are. All right. Well, thank you, sir. Have an awesome week. Stay safe and get well and uh, hope to see you again soon. You bet.
Take care. Welcome home, everybody. All right. Bye, everyone.